Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Internal emails obtained by Global News, as you know, quote, Correctional Service Canada employees predicting a, quote, circus, end quote, surrounding any Bernardo transfer before it ever took place. It's not funny. Tim Danson is the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families. He's challenging the Correctional Service Canada position and the parole board. Uh, Tim, thank you very much uh, for joining us. I, I keep intruding on your Sundays in July. I, I, I should apologize, but I know you don't mind. That's an important subject. It sure is. So, when, when they say, when Correctional Service Canada makes the case, or tries to make the case, one of the reasons that they transferred Bernardo to medium security was because he's, quote, integrated into the prison population. You reacted to that. Please tell us, please share us what, with us what your thinking is. Well, first of all, he he didn't uh, interact uh, within the general prison population. Had had he done that, he would be dead because the general prison population at Millhaven uh, will not. They won't even tolerate someone like Paul Bernardo. What 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 they must mean is that he integrated among some inmates on his range, which is a small number of of inmates. So that criteria uh, is 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 one that uh, is not it just doesn't it just doesn't wash. The the other thing that's really bothering about this, and I have to you know, confess, I've, I've I've done a preliminary review of the report. I, I haven't uh, um, weighed down on it the way that I need to and will uh, with the families, and I'll probably have more to say later. But but let's assume even if we accept that they comply uh, with the law and the policies, then the law has to be changed. The, the fact of the matter is, and you you played this uh, on your opening just now and in previous shows, uh, you know, the minister, the prime minister, you know, uh, it looks like the, the government of Canada, the leader of the opposition, seems like 40 million Canadians, uh, were um, shocked and appalled at a decision that was incomprehensible. So how can a decision that is shocking, appalling, and incomprehensible stand? Like, this is a diversion. Change the law. And this reliance on, you know, the least uh, restrictive, um, this is the problem. They seem to have a one-size-fits-all. And, and then they have their little bureaucratic checklist, and then they come out with a conclusion. And we're not just – and this is the problem, because we're, we're not talking about the general prison population. We're talking about Canada's most dangerous criminal population – we're talking about sadistic, sexual psychopaths, uh, and um, uh, you know we, we should be reminded that the Supreme Court of Canada has told us repeatedly that sentencing is the means by which society communicates its moral values. Well, what are our moral values when it comes to sadistic, sexual psychopaths who prey on innocent, defenseless teenage girls and young women? So to put them all into the same category with this checklist. Uh, is is wrong, and so we actually have to have a full sale um, uh, legislative change. And the least restrictive terminology can't apply uh, to the general prison population and Paul Bernardo the same. So we really we really need to take a step back and just decide that we're going to change the law to make sure that Canadians are protected from uh, people like Paul Bernardo. 
But also, in, in my preliminary view of the report, I didn't see one sentence, one, one iota uh, uh, of, 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 of communication in that report that put any weight on the punishment side of the sentence. And that's wrong. Yeah. Least restrictive policy. You can see that applying perhaps to, you know, I, I don't want to say run of the mill, but not dangerous offenders. But if they extend it to someone who's been defined as a dangerous offender, accepted as such, and as you said, is identified as a sadistic psychopath, sociopath, if they start to uh, extend this least restrictive policy to these types of individuals, well, it's, 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 it's dangerous, it's banal, and if you want to do it, if you want to have least restrictive, put them in the general population of a prison. That's the, that's the least restrictive, isn't it? Yeah, that, that would be. And, 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 you, know, and, and you, you kind of nailed, you, you, you really stated it well there, Roy, that is that they, when you apply this general principle of application, to everybody the same, you end up with a serious injustice. And I have another question, which is, we, we, you know, we have Paul Bernardo's parole hearing coming up, this third one coming up in November. Why, why wouldn't they wait until November? And the reason why I say that is because at his 2018 hearing and at his 2021 hearing, so that's after 28 years being in prison, he demonstrated, says the parole board, no remorse, no empathy, no insight. And here we are coming up, you know, months away from his next hearing. Why don't we wait to see what the parole board has to see, say if, he's, if he has evolved to the benefit at all, even some remorse, some insight, some empathy. But to do this in the wake of findings of no remorse, no empathy, no insight, and now you're moving him to medium security, uh, you know, it's, it's breathtaking and it's wrong. And this is what's wrong when you apply kind of a bureaucratic test and just check the boxes and forget who you're dealing with. This is not just any offender. This is a, an offender who's, who, who committed crimes that are so unspeakable uh, that it, it's beyond anyone's imagination. And we treat him the same as everybody else. And, and you also make the important point, um, Roy, which is he's also been designated a dangerous offender. He's not just someone who's been convicted of murder. He's been getting life in jail. He's been designated a dangerous offender. And we're talking about least restrictive. Um, you know, there's a reason why people are shocked and appalled and why it's incomprehensible. So change the law. Yeah. It's such an important question that you ask. Why now? I mean, doesn't anybody pay attention? Why, why now? Just months before his third parole board hearing, you move him into a, into a medium security prison in Quebec. And then Quebec, uh, or Correctional Service Canada argues... The Lamacaza prison in Quebec is suited for high-profile sex offenders and has programs suitable for such offenders. Good Lord. Uh, there's a program for serial abductors of teens and murderers of these teens? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's well established uh, by the experts that there is no cure or proper treatment for sadistic sexual psychopaths. There just isn't. And so let's not play games. Um, and we have to take that into account. You know, the other uh, explanation they gave, and I'm not sure if it's in the report, but I did speak with the commissioner for over an hour uh, this week, is that, um, Mac, they, that she said that maximum security penitentiaries in Canada are for people who, you know, are going to attack prison guards and other 
inmates, and so therefore they have to be in maximum security. And we pointed out during that conversation that that criteria could never, ever apply to Paul Bernardo because he's a coward. He would never strike out at a prison guard, and he would never strike out at another inmate in the maximum security penitentiary. He just picks on vulnerable, innocent teenage girls and young and young women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to, so to, to suggest that as a criteria is really untenable. Hey, Tim, final question for you. Uh, this is all entertainment for Bernardo, isn't it? And But it's, it's simultaneously, it's once again agony for the families. And it's so, this is, this is where we so critically fail the families, and we critically fail society. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely uh, painful for the families. It's just that this, the knowing uh, what this, this person did to their daughters and that he's getting all these kind of benefits and considerations, certainly considerations he never gave Kristen and Leslie and, 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 and many others. Um, and, you know, it is entertainment. First of all, it is clear, uh, and this was a, an, an argument that we made at the time that we were trying to prevent uh, public access to the media, uh, to the videotapes, which thank God we were successful. But he videotaped his crime because it was entertainment for him, and, and so he could view it later. And anybody who watched him in his last two parole hearings, particularly the last one, he was in his glory. He was in his element. All of this is entertainment for him. And it, it is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people in Corrections Canada who lose sight of the forest for the trees. And, and this has to stop. And Canadians have to keep expressing their outrage. And it is not, as I said at the outset, it is not an answer that they complied with the law, because even if they did, then change it. So Russia has quit its grain export deal, um, allowing Ukraine's grain to be exported without interference on the Black Sea to um, Turkey. The Russians have quit. And now they're engaging in missile attacks on Ukrainian cities and centers of export for grain to a hungry world. Now, that's, uh, that's, your, that's your Mr. Putin. I still get emails from people telling me, oh, no, 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 Vladimir Putin is not a bad guy. Really? What are you paying attention to? What's your source? Please don't send me any more of your emails. Don't. Anyway, they're also engaging in missile attacks on the city of Odessa, which is uh, inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Now, Ukraine did uh, attack the bridge linking Russia with the Crimean Peninsula a second time, and I guess that just totally angered Vlad Putin. Alexander Sherba is back with us, our good friend and former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria and member of the Ukraine diplomatic mission to the United States. His book is Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Alexander, thank you very much for joining us. One of these days, I'll have to ask you about those undiplomatic thoughts to share them on the air with us. Um, thank you for having me again, Roy. Uh, well, today was a terrible, terrible day, a terrible morning in Ukraine because we had to wake up and to see all this havoc and destruction that Putin caused uh, in Odessa. In Odessa, uh, people in both in Ukraine and in Russia have a nickname for this city, Odessa Mama. So it's like a very, very warm uh, feeling uh, that uh, we Ukrainians have about the city and just to see 
this this destroyed uh, temple there and to, to see how Putin um, is using uh, two kinds of uh, missiles against uh, uh, Odessa. First, uh, so-called um, missiles uh, X-22, which have um, a range of... Uh, which um, which are not very exact, so basically they can uh, swerve from their target uh, till uh, up to uh, 600 meters. So uh, uh, he uh, and they carry uh, around uh, one ton of uh, TNT, uh, and this is the kind of uh, missiles uh, he is using against uh, Odessa. And the second missile is uh, so-called Onyx missile. It's against vessels. And it's rather precise and very difficult for Ukrainian air defense uh, uh, to shoot down. So both of them are causing terrible, terrible devastation. But uh, we are holding up and the uh, counteroffensive uh, in Ukraine south uh, uh, is uh, still, you know, uh, underway. Not uh, the big, the big parts of Ukrainian army hasn't been deployed yet there. We are still uh, looking forward to, you know, uh, breaking through uh, Russian defenses. Unfortunately, they are very strong in the south. Plus, in Ukraine's east, uh, Russians are trying their own counteroffensive without without actually much result. Yeah, I, I uh, tweeted out at the Roy Green Show. I tweeted out or, or um, um, reposted one of your posts about. What's going on in Odessa? Photographs of uh, what the Russians are doing to this amazing, amazingly beautiful and historic city. So now, so let's talk about the Russians canceling the grain export agreement with Ukraine. That was in response, in reply to Ukraine, um, justifiably attacking that bridge, which is the Russian centerpiece, Putin's centerpiece, to uh, salute himself for the 2014 illegal theft of Ukrainian territory, the Crimean Peninsula. But whenever Ukraine does that, attack that bridge, and uh, it's a legitimate, legitimate target because the, the Russian military uses it, he just responds with, uh, with assaults on Ukraine. And now the, the grain export agreement uh, canceled, and he's going to try to interfere with... Uh, with Ukraine's shipments themselves. Is there a way to get around Russian interference with grain ex exports at, at sea, uh, Alexander? Well, we are trying to find uh, ways to, to circumvent uh, the uh, major ports uh, in Black Sea, like Odessa, um, that are unfortunately blocked now by Russia, uh, and there are a couple of ways, uh, including the Danube Delta, uh, where uh, Ukraine, um, well, is trying to build, uh, hastily trying to build new facilities, port facilities for uh, exports of our grain. Uh, also, the European Union is offering uh, their um, services in, you know, railway exports, uh, but, uh, of course, it uh, it results in a higher price for Ukrainian grain, which is difficult. And for Putin, uh, you know, canceling a grain deal, uh, he was just looking for a, an excuse because this is a game for him. He was uh, basically doing a favor to Erdogan. But uh, uh, right now, uh, the uh, grain prices uh, are soaring, which is uh, um, good for Putin. Uh, Ukraine as a um, 
uh, competitor is being removed from the market, which is good for Putin. Uh, and a uh, big part of the grain that he sells on the uh, market is actually Ukrainian grain that he stole from Ukraine. So uh, in every way, it's just it's a very, very cruel, as our foreign minister uh, says, hunger game uh, that Putin is playing with the world. Yeah. And uh, this is just a comment from me. Perhaps if our federal government weren't too concerned about fertilizer use in the prairie provinces and we maximized our ability to produce grain, that might be to the benefit of the whole world. But I wouldn't want to be someone to tell Mr. Stephen Gilbo what to do because he has the answers to everything. The tower climber. That's what I'm going to refer to him as now. The tower climber. Public mischief is what he was convicted of. The tower climber. Um, Alexander, please hold on. I, I have some more questions for you. I, I, honestly, I've never heard you sound like you sound today. I, I can't tell whether you're sad or angry or just a combination of the, of the two. It's just, I, I'm sorry to hear the way you're sounding. I have to tell you that. It was a bad day. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. Putin is in continuing difficulty, perhaps increasing difficulty since over the last two, three weeks since that almost, uh, I don't know how close they came to, to getting to him and removing him. But uh, do you have any sense of what's, of what's going on there now? How much trouble is he in? Well, he's definitely in a weaker position uh, ever since that mutiny uh, on uh, June 24th. Uh, he, uh, this week, uh, he has arrested the most uh, prominent uh, uh, critic uh, of uh, how he conducts the war. Uh, okay, uh, incidentally, incidentally, it was the guy who boasted uh, about his role uh, in starting the war in Donbass in 2014. He was back then a very avid, you know, a follower of Putin, um, uh, Igor Girkin, uh, Strelkov. So he, Putin has started, you know, this crackdown on uh, uh, these hardliners who are not. Uh, who think that uh, uh, much, much more uh, Russians should be recruited and much more, more, you know, uh, uh, weapons, including uh, nuclear, should be uh, deployed in Ukraine. Um, so he's uh, trying to stifle uh, the, you know, most hardcore voices, uh, not because he's a humanist, but because uh, they... Um, so split the public support uh, in Russia. And he's uh, uh, traveling throughout the country all of a sudden and trying to hug babies and uh, to be seen in public, which is very unusual uh, for the guy who was hiding in his bunker for uh, the last two years. So um, this is my impression. He is not, he, he, he is not done yet, of course, but he's in a weak position. Uh, and... Uh, uh, of course, uh, this whole campaign is not going according to his plans. He is interested in, you know, freezing it uh, for a while uh, and uh, restarting it uh, in, in, in half a year, in a year. And we know that in Ukraine. Therefore, we are very skeptical about all these, you know, hints that uh, Ukraine should sacrifice a part uh, of her people, of her territory, of her freedoms uh, to Kremlin once again. We uh, want to win this war. Uh, 
although we understand and we see it's it comes uh, at, at enormous cost. Tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, I ask you questions when you come on the program, and you're very generous uh, to, to come on as frequently as you do, and you answer my questions, but let me just ask you this. What do you want to say to the people of this country? And we have people listening to this program online in far-flung places in the, in the world. What is it you want us to know? Well, uh, first of all, I know you're not a big fan of Trudeau government, but I want to say thank you, uh, Canada, for you know extending the personal sanctions against uh, a number of Russian propagandists uh, in Canada uh, during this week. So Canada in, in imposed you know visa ban on a number of people who call themselves uh, actors and film directors and singers, but in reality they are propagandists for Putin. And this was a very good step, and uh, I saw the tweets by the Russian embassy protesting against it, but uh, of course it was uh, as hypocritical as everything they tweet and uh, state uh, these days. Most important message from for, uh, is to, to, to Canada as a NATO country. And uh, we need, uh, we have this situation uh, in Odessa right now. Odessa is not as good covered uh, with, you know, patriots uh, as Kiev, for instance. And uh, unfortunately, Odessa, we in Odessa, we don't have the wide range uh, Atacams uh, missiles and Tomahawk missiles from the West so that we can counter, uh, you know, these strikes that are coming basically on a daily basis. Um, so Russians are uh, uh, destroying Odessa from a safe distance, and it shouldn't be that way. So please say yes when uh, uh, the uh, question is decided whether to supply Ukraine with uh, 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 500 uh, kilometers uh, uh, missiles so that these, you know, uh, uh, missile uh, vessels, uh, carriers, uh, Russian uh, cannot be, wouldn't uh, feel so, you know, uh, free uh, in the uh, vicinity of Crimea and, uh, you know, destroying our cities. That would be the most important thing right now. We need other camps in Ukraine. Yeah. We'd have to support the initiative because we don't have any ourselves. We, we, we don't have yeah. enough, but, we don't have enough military equipment to protect ourselves. We are. Uh, please we are. Uh, make your uh, voice heard. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Are you confident that the military operation with the equipment that you have now, and I know you need the F-16s and, uh, and the additional munitions that you mentioned, are you confident that with, you, what, with what you have now that the counteroffensive will in fact succeed? Two things. You confident of that? And you'll have to give me the answer in 20 seconds. I'm sorry. And are you confident the grain shipments will be able to get through at some point? Uh, I am confident, but most importantly, uh, our uh People on the front line are confident because for me it's easy to be confident here sitting uh, in Kiev. And about grain ships, a grain, grain deal, it will be a very, very difficult issue, but Ukrainian diplomacy is working on it. There's a lot to uh, unpack on this story. Scott New York is with us, former Alberta Crown Attorney, Policy Advisor to a federal and Ontario minister for public safety and former vice chair for the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Scott is a Good friend of this program. How are you, Scott? Good, thank you. And uh, Mike Lake, Conservative Member of Parliament from Edmonton, father of a 27-year-old autistic son. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great, Roy. 
And I, I want to I want to introduce this now. Um from the convicted child sex trafficker living in an, a center for autistic youth to another chapter in the ugly scenario surrounding Paul Bernardo's transfer to Quebec medium security prison to privacy rights for convicted criminals. What must and can be done to make Canada's justice system responsive to the needs and expectations of Canadians? Now, on the story about the center... Uh, where autistic children and children were supposed to be being cared for. Um, a convicted sex offender living at the uh, at uh, the address of this particular center for kids on the autism spectrum, he and his wife, who owned the business, or owns it, I guess, they've been charged with human trafficking in a human trafficking investigation. The uh, individual's name is Lauriston Maloney, and his wife, Amber Maloney. And uh, the offenses that they've been charged with include recruiting, exercising control, exploitation, assault, forcible confinement, and financial benefit from committing a crime. Uh, Mr. Maloney has said it's ridiculous that he's being charged with this. So police are investigating and uh, charges are going to be moving forward or have been late. I'm not sure which one it is. Mike, let me start with you. You're the father of an autistic young man, 27 years of age. You've been on this program talking about your son uh, on a number of occasions. Without specifically getting at this at this case in, in Ontario, how vulnerable are autistic young people? They're, they're very vulnerable. Um, you know, Jaden, uh, you know, when I think about Jaden, of course, autism is a spectrum, so not everybody who has a diagnosis of autism is exactly like Jaden, but, uh, you know, Jaden is incredibly authentic. He loves people. He's very trusting uh, with people. Um, and, uh, and, and you layer in the fact that he has a lot of difficulties. He's non-speaking, so he isn't able to communicate um, exactly what he's feeling, exactly what's happening, even in ways that he can communicate through writing or, or typing on his iPhone. Um, he doesn't communicate abstract things like pain or danger or, or those types of things. And so um, in a situation like we're talking about here, uh, someone like Jaden would be incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. What was your reaction to this story? At first, I mean, at first, like I think most people, um, real intense anger and frustration, I think some disbelief, I think trying to figure out, and I think we're still trying to figure out what happened in this situation and how it got to, to uh, wh where it is. And then I think what, what's happened is a, a transition, maybe not even a transition, maybe just an addition of, uh, of a lot of sympathy as I've, as I've listened to parents' comments and really considered what it would be like for the parents in that circumstance um, just a, an incredible sympathy for both the parents and for the, the, the kids with autism uh, at the center um, because they would be going through all of the emotions that the rest of us are going through times a, a thousand. Scott, what, what's, uh, what's your response to all of this, the story and the issues surrounding it? Well, let me first of all say, Roy, uh, there's some uh, technical problems. I'm having a very hard time hearing you guys. So if you could maybe check with that, but if assuming you can hear me, 
Um, when I first saw this story, I think the thing that jumped out at me was this was an OPP uh, uh, public alert, which is uh, only possible under the Police Services Act of Ontario, and there's got to be a legal standard that's met. And they put this thing out, and then they, you know, and they identify correctly that this guy's got a history of child sex offenses, two separate in- conviction uh, series of convictions, and uh, but they say that you know, uh, oh yeah, but he has the convictions or the sentences are over, and there are no restrictions on him specifically pertaining to his behavior. So you know, he has charter rights that need to be protected. And I thought, what the heck is that? You know, or are, are we delved into? politically correct policing and you know why wouldn't they use a tool that you know uh, we were involved in uh, developing preventive reconnaissances because if you meet the legal criteria to release this kind of a uh, statement public statement you almost certainly would uh, meet the uh, criteria to get a preventive reconnaissance with the breach of which by the way uh, is a criminal offense and the you can put conditions on that say you know you're not allowed to be around children Okay, you may will remember, I'm sure, this is something that Ontario brought in originally uh, after the uh, Christopher Stevenson case when we lost track of uh, Joe Fredericks, and it took us years to convince the feds to do it, but we made this change, you know, changes, and as I look at this, I'm going, why are we using the tools in our toolbox? And then the next day, the Ontario Solicitor General's office issues a, a statement that is very condemning of what's taken place and how this was actually done. And they said that, you know, uh, this is a failure of the justice system and that the guy's wife was um, uh, had not followed the appropriate regulatory procedures in uh, dealing, with, you know, to get the uh, uh, permit to run the place. Uh, the, the guy did uh, some uh, media and some of the uh, um, uh, family members of the uh, the children attending the center were interviewed. And the next day, guess what? They both get charged. Yeah, now, it's just a, this is what we used to define as suspicion of being suspicious. Uh, I'm, I think that, you know, we'll, as, as this case evolves, we'll find out as, as, as to whether or not there was a larger plan involved in some of this about seeing that if they could get this guy into doing things that would reveal stuff so they could now charge them. Okay, but you and you and I, you and I, Scott, we don't use the tools in the toolbox. You and I are going to talk more broadly about justice in a couple of minutes. But uh, Mike, uh, a final thought. I know that this is an, an issue that I asked you to speak about. I know you walked away from uh, a function, uh, local function that uh, that you're attending to talk to us for, for a few minutes. So, just give us a final thought on on on, on what you see needs to be done. And if you want to cross the line a little bit into your into your role as a federal legislator, federal member of parliament, please do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think at a broad level, um, there's a lot to understand about this this particular case. But at a broad level, we have to remember that when it comes to rights, um, you know, it's it's not just the rights of the people who commit the crimes that matter. You know, we have to we have to protect victims. Our our public safety system, our criminal justice system, needs to protect victims, and it needs to minimize the number of victims. So it needs to protect the broad public, um, people who are vulnerable. This case highlights um, the extent to which there is, uh, to use the the language that's been used uh, this past week, a failure of the system. And we need to be, as elected officials at all levels of government, taking a look at a system that. 
minimizes the impact on 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 victims and and protects the the public more broadly. And uh, I will say this as a sort of closing comment on the specific case. I, I've seen in the media that um, uh, that there's no with the new charges that there's no specific indication that the victim in this case uh, is someone at the at the center, one of the the kids with autism at the center. But as a parent. I try to imagine what it would be like to be, you know, to have my son in that in that system. And if there was something going on, Jaden wouldn't be able to articulate that to me. And I just can't imagine what those families are going through right now with this news and trying to navigate that news in terms of the conversation and relationships they're having with their with their loved ones. Mike, like, thank you for joining us. Uh, Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. A listener asked this question. I'm not sure I can answer it. Why does Bernardo have access to parole when he's designated as a dangerous offender? Because that's the law. Is it after he served 25 years? No, that's a different uh, uh, parole eligibility date for persons convicted of murder or first-degree murder. But a dangerous offender designation, it's a life designation, but there's an eligibility for parole period set at seven years. So even though he's set as a dangerous offender, and even though he's, he's, uh, he's convicted of mass murder and he's sentenced to life in prison, he can, he, could he then have uh, requested a parole hearing seven years into his sentence? No, because it would, that would have been overruled by the parole ineligibility from the murder convictions. But he was eligible, and he did apply for parole. He's applied. I've done some research into this. He's applied uh, two times, once in 2018 and once in uh, 2021, uh, when he was entitled to. And by the way, under our current stupid laws, uh, oops, um, he's able to apply every two years. And that's another thing that needs to be changed, is that the board that turns him down, as they did, like, blatantly in describing his danger to the public, uh, should be able to say, and by the way, uh, you're not eligible to apply for parole again until, say, 10 years. That used to be the law in relation to, if you remember, the faint hope clause. I remember it well. If it was turned down, where you got let out after 15 years, um, and if it was uh, uh, not accepted by the jury, the jury could also make a recommendation to say, and oh yeah, you got another 10 years left because it was only after 15 that you could apply. Um, you can't apply until, you know, whatever the time period was. And I was involved in a case out in Saskatchewan that was uh, about that. Um, but that's something that also needs to be done. It's something we could change relatively easily, and it would have, if it's done carefully and done with, by allowing it to be done not mandatorily but by with discretion, um, in, uh, in my opinion, there's absolutely no question that that would be a constitutional okay, so, valid, charter so, valid. So let me ask you this. What disturbs you about the rationale employed by Ann Kelly and Correctional Service Canada in the moving of Bernardo uh, to Quebec and, and, the, and the excuses they provided or the rationale they provided. And, uh, and, and uh, Tim Danson wanted to know, he said, really interesting that they did this just months before he has a parole hearing. But what's your sense of this, of the, 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 uh, the explanation they tried to you provide? Know, it's the cultural 
attitudes that you and I have experienced at Correctional Service of Canada over decades. The arrogance, and that was on full display when Commissioner Kelly was doing her uh, uh, media so-called briefing. The lack of any real accountability, the we-know-best-about-everything attitude. And uh, But just by the way, I mean, I, I, I believe I sent it to you as well, too. When she did her uh, briefing on Thursday this week, um, they released an executive summary. I think it was like seven or eight pages of the report that was described as being, I believe, 83 pages. And I thought, well, where's the real, the full report? And you know what? I was looking this morning, and it was an article that was written by somebody, and it was uh, late yesterday afternoon, that apparently the full report had been disclosed. Why would you wait that long? Okay? And... Guess what? It turns out that the report was given to the correctional uh, commissioner uh, on uh, June the 26th. So what? why were they holding on to it for so long? Oh, and guess what? Yet another example of something. Uh, this was not an independent investigation. They were investigating themselves. It's that lack of institutional accountability uh, and, I think, integrity. Uh, and they follow their own rules about things because they say they know best about everything, and anybody that might challenge that, you know, uh, is therefore challenging their uh, expertise. Yeah, because, you All know, one of the things... to be exposed and acted upon. Scott, one of the things that they say that at La Macaza, yeah. that they have the appropriate programs to deal with and treat sexual offenders. Well, this guy was a serial killer. Yeah, and, and Roy, not only that... Um, this guy, apparently, when you go delve into the details, and I, I, I let me just tell you, and I'm going to make this recommendation. I think this is something that, for example, the Public Safety Committee in the House of Commons should not just let go yeah. with this uh, look the other way, brush it off okay. uh, internal report. Okay, buddy. Because when you dig into it, there are all sorts of alarming factual details as well. In 2022... Listen to these numbers, please, ladies and gentlemen. 18.4% of people in the 10 provinces of this country lived in a food-insecure household. That amounts to 6.9 million people, including almost 1.8 million children, living in households that struggled to afford the food they need. Nobody can walk away from this. You cannot turn your back on this. 1.8 million kids living in households struggling to afford the food they need. And this is a considerable increase from 2021. Uh, my guest is the co-author of a comment titled, Food Charity Will Not Fix Food Insecurity. Our guest is Professor Valerie Tarasuk of the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto, founding investigator at Proof, a research program studying food insecurity and how to reduce it. Professor Tarasak, thank you very much for joining us. We last talked about a year ago. And things were worse. Things were really bad then, but they're worse now. Can you can you just give us a snapshot of of what Canadians facing food security or fa insecurity are facing? And and I and I tend to want to drop food insecurity and just say hunger. Yeah. Well, the measurement that was used to create the statistics that you just described. Um, is 18 questions that range in severity from people worrying about running out of food and not having money for more through to uh, compromising the quality of what they eat 
or the quantity of what they eat. At its most extreme, question number 18, is children going whole days without eating because of a lack of food or money for food? How many days? I'm sorry. How many days? Very, very few people say yes to that number 18. But I offer this spectrum to you just to give you a sense of how serious the levels of deprivation are that are being measured here. So 18.4%, 1.8 million children living in households that are struggling like this. It's very bad news for Canada. How many days are children going without food? Question 18. It would, the question is, have, has, has your child ever gone a whole day in the last year okay. without eating because of a lack of food or money for food? And then if you say yes to that, then it's how often. But like I say, it's very, very rare that anybody says yes to that. It's much more common for us to um, see adults reporting going whole days without eating. But usually in households where there are children, adults will do everything they can to make sure those children have something. Yeah. In 2021, was the number of children facing food insecurity uh, 1.4 million, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's 400,000 more. Yeah, yeah, actually more than 400,000 is the increase. I mean, it's terrible because the rate of food insecurity rose substantially between 2021 and 2022. And most of that increase is families with children. So I read the comment that you co-wrote. And uh, in in the comment, you indicate the prime minister insists that uh, a program of his government is fulfilling the government's priority of, quote, making life more affordable for Canadians. And you wrote, the federal approach and food policy is deeply misguided because Ottawa assumes food charities are resolving hungry Canadians' food needs, and that's not happening at all. Just provide us that story, please. Well, what we've seen over the last few months is the federal government launching another call for applications for something called the Local Food Infrastructure Fund. So this is funding that goes to community organizations to uh, pay for transportation and uh, warehousing and things like that to help them move more donations, primarily from food industry, through the food bank system. So what we're saying in that commentary is that we think this is wrong-handed, that we know from our work and work that other people have done in Canada that most people who are food insecure don't use food banks, and those who do are not rendered food secure by the act of of obtaining food charity. So for the federal government to be leaning so heavily on charities right now to try to mitigate this problem or manage this problem at the community level, it's really a bad idea because there's nothing that we know to suggest that they're going to be capable of managing the situation. I mean, they haven't been able to keep the problem at bay and they're not going to be able to. And, you know, I know that might sound harsh to some people, but I'm not saying anything that food bank operators haven't been saying for years. I mean, they've repeatedly said this problem is bigger than us. You know, we need policy changes to, to you know, go upstream and deal with the drivers of this problem, not more food charity. But sadly, we're not seeing that from our federal government yet. And the federal government keeps cheering itself about, uh, you know, patting itself on the back about the Canada Child Benefit, providing more money to the lowest income households. How helpful is that? Well, it it's obviously not good enough, or you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. No, we wouldn't. I mean, for us to see such a dramatic increase in food insecurity over the last year, and particularly an increase amongst families with children, that suggests to me that the Canada Child Benefit isn't working. I mean, this increase that we're 
reporting has happened during a period of unprecedented inflation. So food price inflation, but also inflation in rent and uh, costs of other basic needs. I think the Canada Child Benefit simply hasn't been designed in a way that it's it's managing or mitigating those price hikes for the lowest income families. You know, Professor Tarasuk, as I look at this number, 6.9 million people, including 1.8 million children living in households that struggled to afford the food they need, if we took all those people and put them in a city, you'd have pretty close, if not in fact, the largest city in Canada. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And remember, we're only talking about the 10 provinces and the way the data are collected for this particular survey, they don't include people living on First Nations um, reserves. So this has to be an underestimate, but you're absolutely right. 6.9 million would be bigger than the population of the greater Toronto area. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we're talking a huge number of people. Yeah. What kind of headline would it be if all of a sudden you had, I, I, I went on the air and I said, everybody in the largest city of Canada is going hungry. Yeah. 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 We wouldn't be talking about anything else. No. And, and what's terrible about this is that we know that it's not just that today there are people who will be struggling to get enough to eat and to, you know, they'll be worried about where, where their next meal is coming from. It's not just that, that we know that this problem of food insecurity has health implications, both in the short run and in the long run. And so those 1.8 million children, like they're not getting the same life chances as other children in this country. Mm-hmm. And some of them, those who are in severely deprived circumstances, we can expect them to develop uh, mental and physical health problems coming going forward and uh, to be managing those problems for the rest of their lives. So from a health perspective, you know, this should be ringing alarm bells all over the country. Yeah. Now, this is an abstract to me. I actually lived that when I was a kid. Yeah. So let me just come back to the issue of the food charities, Professor Tarasuk, and in that piece that you co-wrote, um, you say that food charity as a strategy, it's desperation for food insecure Canadians. It's not the answer. It might be a temporary fix for a day or two, but it's not the answer. Uh, where does it fit into the into the entire picture, and what has to happen? What's what do you, what has to happen? Well. What's disturbing about food charity as it fits in the entire picture, I think, is that right now it's all we're doing. And that's been true for decades, right? The first food bank appeared in Canada in 1981. So we're well past 40 years now. And it's concerning that we continue to lean so heavily on community-based charitable food assistance programs to try to manage this problem. I mean, obviously they can't, or these numbers wouldn't be continuing to rise. But it's 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 a problem because right now, if someone is unable to afford the food they need, that's the only thing they can do. Um, you know, it's, it's all anybody offers. And we've heard reports for weeks, months now, of food banks in major centers saying they're absolutely overwhelmed with demand, they can't keep up. Um, you know, people are turning for help because it's what they need to do. But it, it simply isn't enough. 
So we really need to see, especially at the federal level, we need to see a, a, a strategy now that is a bit more evidence-based and, and more enduring than simply, you know, putting up a fund for food banks to buy more refrigerated vehicles. Yeah. Do you know, I was just thinking as you were speaking that in some ways, this is an easy crisis, relatively easy crisis to hide because people don't want to talk about it. People are struggling, don't want to talk about it. Yes. It's very difficult yeah. to have your neighbors or your even your family know that you can't afford food. That's that's tough. And it's a very difficult thing to do. And and you point out again in this piece that you co-wrote, having a job isn't a, uh, alone isn't enough to resolve food insecurity for many people in this country. By our estimate, about two-thirds of households that are food insecure are reliant on employment incomes. Probably many more than that receive some employment income, but about two-thirds, the main source of income is employment. And you're absolutely right. This is a very um, stigmatized, a very humiliating condition to be in, right? Yeah. Um, so you're right. Like, if Statistics Canada wasn't collecting these numbers, we would know very little about the extent of deprivation in our society um, because it, it is something that's largely hidden. And the numbers of people turning up in food banks, you know, food banks are the canary in the coal mine on this problem, but those numbers are small relative to the magnitude of the problem in the country overall. Do you think the numbers will get worse? No, I don't know. What's interesting, the data that we're talking about today were collected between, people were interviewed between January and June of 2022. And we know that that was a period of very, very high inflation. What's happened in the last little while are a couple of things. Like last month, um, people who were eligible received what the federal government called the grocery rebate, right? Uh, another GST credit. So a one-off payment, but still a couple of hundred dollars. Yeah, public relations um, exercise. Sorry. Sorry? I, I think it's a public relations exercise, but anyway. Well, so they, they got that little bit of money, but then in July, the Canada Child Benefit um, increased because it, it was indexed to inflation. Mm -hmm. So it increased by 6.3 or something percent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the this month, people who are low income will and those with children will be doing marginally better than they were last month. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.